0: Our guests coming up right now, Frank Viola and Mary DeMuth. They just wrote a book, and uh, Frank changed my life a lot with his first book, Pagan Christianity, so we're going to talk a little bit about that, too. And the book is called The Day I Met Jesus, The Revealing Diaries of Five Women from the Gospels, and it comes out on March 3rd. Now, what I want to just to start with here, because, Frank, I was uh, just – and we talked about this a little bit earlier. Well, it's been a a month or two now ago on the phone when when we talked about getting you on the show, but – I was leveled and I I think you probably get this a lot cuz you're like I, I've written all these other books and people a lot of times want to talk about pagan Christianity all the time but that book it got me man like I I was I was going to a mega church and I, I don't even know how I heard about it, just some friend or somebody, re- you know, had read it. And I was like, I'll, I'll give that a shot and, and, and read about that. And that book, it just really got me. I mean, I was like, wow, it, it, I just thought it was so interesting. And then uh, so I just thought it, it was so awesome. And it was so challenging. And I love the idea of just challenging the norm, like just not ex- accepting like, well, this is just the way it is and that's just why you do it. You know, My grandparents did it, my parents did it and so that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll go into the church and there's a sanctuary and I, I do this, this and and, and Like it, it really called me to own my Christianity more. And so my first question is, I mean, just being in Florida and, and even
1: being that Bible Belt area, what gave you like the balls to write a book like that? It's interesting because when the book first came out in 2008, George and I were getting hate mail from Quakers and bodily threats from the Amish. And you don't mess with those people. (laughs) Dangerous. It was something else. But, um, you know, we both felt like it had to be said and we wanted to provoke God's people to question their traditions, which is a healthy thing for us. You know, the book has a question mark at the end of it. Is Christianity in its present form really pagan? It Has most of it come from Greco-Roman traditions? Or is it a development from what it was in the first century? So yeah. that's what we explore in the book. And, you know, I got to give it to George. He really had a lot more to lose than I did because yeah. he had the ear of virtually all the evangelical pastors in America. And he knew what was coming. And uh, somebody said to me, Frank, if you write a book with George Barna, you're going to be famous. And my reply was, if George Barna writes a book with me, he's going to be crucified. And (laughs) in effect, he lost a lot of support. But on the other hand, the book has really helped a lot of pastors, especially, and leaders to reexamine what they're doing. And so we've seen the ultimate fruit of it has been good.
2: So with that, basically, the pushback on that was people saying that you, you, what you did was an all-out attack on churches and megachurch and the system and the way that we put it all together. Is that how
1: it was seen? Yeah, that was part of it. Some of the reviews were, quite frankly, nutty. And we basically pointed out to people why we were writing it to provoke people to question mm-hmm. what we're doing. Some people took it personal. Interestingly though, that many of the people who first were vehement against us and misrepresented the book, and by the way, the book is is labeled the most reviewed book by people who have never read it
3: (laughs) (laughs) and there's actually if you go on
1: youtube and look up pagan christianity spoof video you will see a brilliant video responding to the critics who never actually read the book (laughs) but warned everybody against it but a lot of those people initially you know they wrote us letters some years later and said you know what i actually got to read the book and this has helped me because it's caused me to go deeper in the scripture and to ask questions I never really asked or I was afraid to ask.
2: What it did for me was i was a little i was scared when I read it a little bit or i wanted to I was ready to disagree with it is what I felt at the time and i and the criticism I would have had for it then was that. Uh well yeah, but if you take this whole thing and make it more just, you know, try to tear it down, then how is that productive? Like how does that just to show where people are wrong and what we might have taken from the other thing or, or maybe open the door for house churches and those types of things? Well that's never that's not gonna be effective enough because we need something that can unite everybody and become really, really large. And subsequently I'm yeah. less a fan of the larger Things that, that we do in Christianity that are that are as broad and all encompassing. So the criticism is what well, if you want to do house churches and these things, well you, that's fine. You'll have six people in your house and you'll never impact anybody outside of that. And that so that's kind of what I felt at the time. But now I kind of feel almost the opposite way. So it's grown on me over time and yeah. some of the notions that are in there. Do You think it's helpful or appropriate to attack? Like it's not an attack. I'm saying, but. What about the people that say, what we're supposed to do is encourage the pastors and the leaders in the big churches. We shouldn't be trying to poke at them, or get. we should should be encouraging. So why would we be negative? What do you say to
1: that? Well, I think there's a difference between attacking and challenging. Mm -hmm. I think it was John Stott who said that an authentic evangelicalism will go to the Scripture and question everything we're doing in its light. And, you know, there's the old story of the mother who was teaching her young daughter how to make a ham for Easter Sunday. And basically she she took the ham and she cut both ends of the ham off. And the daughter said, why do you cut the ends of the ham off? And the mother just fell silent and said, you know what? I don't know why I did that. Let me go ask my mother, because that's what she always did. So they called Grandma on the phone. They asked her the same question. Why do we cut the ends of the ham off when we put it in the oven? And she fell silent and said, well, I have no idea. My mother always did it that way. (laughs) So all three of them, they talked to the great-great-grandmother and said, why did you cut the ends of the ham off every time you put the ham in the oven for Easter Sunday? And just like that, in lightning speech, she said, well, that's easy. Because at the time, our oven wasn't large enough to house the ham, so we had to cut the (laughs) ends off. And, you know, that shows the power of tradition. Yeah. And, you know, Jesus himself said when he was on the earth, remember, he said, it is through your traditions that you nullify the word of God. That shows you how powerful tradition is. So to challenge and to say, hey, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Where did it come from? To me, that is a helpful thing to do rather than just to ignore it. And so that's why we we raised the question. And, you know, it's really a historical book. And the other point, too, is it's not a standalone book. Pagan Christianity was never to be read on its own. There's a sequel called Reimagining Church that's the constructive sequel. Yeah. That's the companion volume that shows, okay, well, if... A lot of what we're doing really didn't come from the New Testament or Jesus or the apostles. What should take its place? And so that's where we explore that question. The thing that really struck me was that these people in the first century were living in a time where selfishness was at high tide. People did not live very long. They were miserable. And yet there was these small clusters of people known as Christians who actually had joy. And not only that, but they took care of each other. And not only did they take care of each other, but when calamities and plagues would sweep through the cities of that day, it was the Christians who took care of the pagans. Yeah. And so the world noticed, and that's why one person from antiquity said, "Behold, how they love one another."
0: And I I love that too. I I just the the thing I like about it the most is if you believe something. Read something that challenges you. You know, like like we we say this all the time on our podcast. Though, if you just are believe the exact same thing since you were like seven and that and you'd never changed, you're not growing. You're not doing anything, and I don't know if you're really influencing any anybody either. So if it and you can read a book like uh, like uh, pagan Christianity and have to stand on what you believe. Then you actually you know if you if you disagree with what it says or something, then you have to educate yourself or figure out why you believe that. For sure, but uh, so so Mary as well. You are a former church planter and it's in from in France.
3: Yes, uh, the south of France. We suffered for Jesus on the Riviera. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was actually very hard. Um, I say that as a joke, but we spent about two and a half years church planting there, and uh, it was a it, talk about planting a church in the midst of. A pagan place That was definitely it And so we We certainly learned A lot of lessons About you, what is church And how to How to love folks
0: When you say that A pagan place Because like uh, We You know Our band has toured In in Europe And, and a, a ton And I We didn't actually have time To do much sightseeing Because we we're always playing shows But we did see churches You know Everywhere Beautiful cathedrals uh, We were in in Metz uh, France and, and saw just a beautiful cathedrals I still have pic- pictures of it But that's what we all like. We came across so much that people just were completely uninterested in God or church or anything like this. Is that what, you, when you say came up against a pagan culture, what was it like?
3: Yeah, uh, the statistics are pretty scary. It's less than one-half of 1% of people in France are evangelical Christians. Um, the Catholic number is is not much better. Uh, I think it's it's less than 5%, but that's not even people that go on Christmas and Easter. So only in word, I think the, the Muslim population has grown to maybe 8 uh, to 10% in Europe.
1: Mm-hmm. And
3: so it's just an interesting, everybody else would just say, I'm an atheist. So you, you have yeah. a... a A huge gap of a lack of uh religiosity so to speak but also a very strong pagan bent of spiritists and mediums and i've been around the world i've experienced spiritual warfare all over the world but by far the worst was france
2: give us some examples of that what do you mean
3: (laughs) oh boy here we go um (laughs) well we uh Every, I was used to having subtle attacks in the United States, and when I went overseas to like um, to Malaysia and, and to Ghana and to some of these other places where there might be more animistic cultures and things might be very overt, I was not ready for France to be overt. So, for instance, our daughter, who was in the first grade at the time, did not yet know Christ, and she was experiencing some really weird behavior and. We uh, we kept asking her. We thought maybe she was having culture shock or whatever, and we kept asking her all these questions. And finally, she burst into tears and says she's hearing these these voices, and they're telling her to kick her brother, and they're telling her to disobey us. They're waking her up in the middle of the night. Oh and gosh. this went on for a long time, for, for several weeks, until um, she eventually did meet Christ. And I was a little hesitant to ask her, you know, are you still hearing those voices? Because I was pretty sure that they were not good voices, and I'm pretty sure they were demonic, and I was hoping that they would go away once she became a Christian. And she said, Mommy, the, the voices are gone, but there's one voice, and he tells me to make wise choices. And so I was so thankful that that was the voice of the Holy Spirit in wow. her life. Really? But that was kind of just very overt, o- over-the-top attack.
0: And and that was, I mean, for you as a parent, I mean, that just sounds um, unbelievably scary. Like we have a lot of, of of listeners who aren't Christians, and so what is that like? I mean, what what you know what I mean? Like they that to them that sounds so not to pun because like, you're in a foreign country, but it sounds foreign uh, because you know like that idea of a spiritual attack or like what like as a Christian, like hearing that and being a parent as well, what what did you do? Did you just, you just prayed and just, I mean, were were you petrified? Were you scared? Was your husband scared?
3: We weren't scared because we, it was almost like the enemy had, had shown his hand. And so we were like, oh, okay, that's what that is. (laughs) And so we weren't scared, but we were, you know, concerned for her because it was very scary. And we also didn't want to push Jesus on her. We wanted her to make her decision. Um, We presented him, of course, and we let her know that the voices would go away. um, Once she, met Jesus, but we also knew that this was something she had to own. And oddly, she she heard about Jesus through some friends of ours that were taking care of her when we went on. We had to go to a leadership conference in, in uh, Lisbon, and uh, they actually led her to the Lord. And, and then a few weeks later, we were able to baptize her in the Mediterranean Sea, which was really great. But yeah, I mean, if we had not been Christians, we wouldn't have, probably wouldn't have understood what was going on.
2: Um, so you guys both have a really good background in church, church planting, church deconstruction. Uh, it's you've studied it more than we have. We have a pretty broad set of experience from traveling and, you know, being in the Christian culture, but you guys seem to have really studied it and know the ins and outs of it. My question is, Frank and Mary, are we going off a cliff with our, with our church culture these days, or are we going to figure it out? What's gonna, I mean, what are we doing? What's going to happen in the future with the amount of people leaving and people coming up with new ideas and people rejecting it. It seems like a really crazy time in church history. Where is it going? I don't
1: have the foggiest idea. I, <laughs> I was hoping somebody uh, would know.
3: <laughs> well, I, I think actually, um, I think that persecution is going to benefit the church you see the American Church and what happened with beheadings in the past couple of weeks um and how that has kind of rallied the church, but I think also it has woken up the sleeping western church to to help them to realize this is real this is life and death. And we're either going to play this game called Christianity and be a bunch of fakers and just try to look like a Christian from the outside. I mean, it's hard. That's how it is in the South. Everyone tries to look like a Christian. They may not be a Christian, but they try to look like one because everybody else is one, so to speak. Um, But you get to that place in persecution where you're either going to play the game and pretend, or you're going to really believe or not believe. You're going to make a choice. And so I think that as more persecution is ushered in, um, we're going to begin to see a separation of true Christianity versus playing the game. Because after a while, playing the game isn't going to get you anywhere, and you're you're not going to you're not going to do that. So,
2: so your new book is the the day I met Jesus, and you mentioned that it's part fiction and and part nonfiction. So how does that work? That's not, that's an unconventional book structure.
3: It's um, five. True stories of women from the New Testament, and they are um, they are created in story arcs, so that you have a beginning, middle, and end, a rising and all of that. But the words that they say, if they have dialogue, it's pulled right from Scripture, so it's Mm -hmm. very closely tied to Scripture. But it fleshes out what their story could possibly be right before they met Jesus, and then when they meet him, and how he changes their lives forever.
2: And who are the five women in it?
3: There's the woman at the well the woman who's caught in adultery, the prostitute who loves much, the desperate Samaritan woman, and... Uh,
1: the woman with the flow of blood. Yes, you the woman with the blood. flow of blood.
3: Yeah, There we go. Thank you. I had to look it up.
0: I wanted to go back to that, too. How did, how did you guys, I know you said you wrote this together on the Internet, but like uh, Frank, how did you decide to work with a co-author on this book?
1: Well, I had an idea some years back. To create a new genre of Christian literature, which would basically take characters from the New Testament and have them tell their own story through their own words. But to do it in such a way that was faithful to the first century and closely tied to the New Testament. So it wasn't just fantasizing and imagining like a lot of Hollywood movies do with the Bible. Right. But to give it that autobiographical feel to bring these characters to life and then also to have a nonfiction section following this autobiographical fictionalized narrative, but a nonfiction section that would make application to our lives today. The first book in this genre was called God's Favorite Place on Earth, Lazarus, who I think we all know Jesus raised him from the dead. He lived in a little village called Bethany, and he's an old man, and he tells a story of when Jesus came to his little town and all the amazing things that happened there, and it throws light on how important the little village of Bethany was to Jesus. It was actually the only place on earth that received him while he was here. He was rejected everywhere else, and so Lazarus tells the story, and then we have the nonfiction section bringing these points out. Well, I also had an idea... At the same time, to write a similar book, where some of the women in the Gospels told their story, and I am not a woman, so there's no <laughs> way I could have written that. So I was on the hunt for a Christian fiction writer who was not only a remarkable writer, but who also shared a lot of the same <laughs> passions and views about the Lord that I did. And uh, I found Mary shortly after, you know, my search. I knew she was a, a nonfiction author. But when I found out that she wrote fiction, you know, I just was elated. I was euphoric. Yeah. And so she was the only name on my short list. And when I approached her about it, she said yes. And so that's that's how we rolled that ball. And A year later, we finished the book, and it it
2: releases March third. Yeah, I don't think that would have been well received if it was just from you, you alone. I can see the the. I don't think
0: so. (laughs) Yeah, you needed that voice for sure. What uh, did you guys have any insights like after after writing this book? Did 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 a favorite character or one of the women you know stand out more than the other? Did the did the stories get more powerful?
3: Um, I think for me, uh, I I fell in love with all five women and I realized that there was a bit of me in all of them, which I think is the beauty of the Bible because it has such a grand stratosphere of people and we can kind of place ourselves within the story. I appreciated so much Mary of Bethany because she's a lot like your typical Um, faithful Christian woman who just is trying to do the right thing and may not be recognized for it, may not be noticed for it, and might even be rebuked for being um, thrilled about Jesus. And so I I appreciated her. The the other one that stood out to me, and I'm sure Frank has some favorites too, is the one he mentioned, uh, the woman with the issue of blood. She had a chronic condition that left her weak and probably emaciated and um, definitely iron poor. But also that condition ostracized her from the community, the very thing, the lifeblood of um, Israel. And and so she not only experienced this health abandonment, but a community. And so when Jesus restored her, everything got restored, everything. And so that yeah. was it, – it just really was powerful to me as I, as I wrote that.
0: I, I like awesome. that you guys uh, wrote this book just because I do like uh – just bringing out more characters from the Bible, experiencing their stories and seeing, you know, because a lot of times the the Bible people read it very in, in a very masculine way, I guess. And to see some some of that, and, and I, I agree. If it, Frank, if you wrote this, it probably would have been more masculine than it needed to be. But I love that aspect of just uh, bringing these characters to life, experiencing these women as man. They're they're very important parts of the Bible too. So I do I do really like that.
1: One of the things I want to talk about, too, and we have this in the introduction of the book, is that I've been a Christian for a long time, and I think that one of the things that many believers suffer from is the fact that the Bible can become so tired and so familiar that in effect becomes irrelevant and boring. If you read the stories enough times without any kind of help, to draw light from it and to gain insights that you normally wouldn't get without looking deeper, it just becomes laborious. And there's a story that we start the book out with where Jesus has just been crucified. His disciples are now downtrodden. They're, they've lost hope. They've lost the Messiah. Everything they'd hoped for has been dashed to the ground. Yeah. And there's two disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus and interestingly enough, we point out that these two disciples are a couple. It's Cleopas and Mary, and they're married, and we show where we get this from. Anyway, they're walking, and all of a sudden, this stranger appears to them out of nowhere, and they don't recognize him. And he asks them what's wrong, and they explain, you know, we, we thought we had the Messiah, we followed him all these years, we gave up everything, and he was just put to death, and we don't know what to do. Luke, who's writing this story, he says... The stranger begins to open up the scriptures, beginning with Moses and the Psalms and the prophets. And what he does there is he retells the story. He tells it in a new way. He puts a new light on it. And as they're listening to the stranger retell the story, their hearts burn inside of them. And then they invite the stranger to their home. And they bid him a meal and the stranger takes the bread, he lifts it up. And if you can imagine this in your mind, watch his hands lift up the bread, watch him break the bread, watch his arms extend. And at that point, it says their eyes were opened and they recognized that this stranger was no stranger at all. It was Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what happened there? When he broke the bread, they saw the wounds in his wrists, and he vanished from their sight. And so what we're doing in this book, we're doing two things. One, we're telling the story differently. We're not departing from the biblical narrative. We're staying very close to it, but we're putting a fresh light on it. We're telling it through a new lens, as it were. And our whole reason is so that we will see Jesus... A new and afresh. And whenever we recognize, whenever we're actually looking for the wounds, as it were, our eyes are opened and we see Christ. And I think beyond seeing these women come to life who we've read over and over again in the Gospels and hearing them tell their stories, we're seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in a brand new, powerful way. That's why we wrote the book. We want people to see Christ In a way, they've never seen him before. And hopefully, we've pulled that off. That's awesome. I I, I really like that.
0: I do think, I I love that that you guys opened that up. Now, I would be like, honestly, if that was me, I was standing there and I realized it was Jesus and then he disappeared, I'd probably go, ah! (laughs)
3: <laughs> I, probably, I,
0: I think I'd be petrified. I, I, I heard a sermon recently uh, talking about that, and the guy was just saying that like Jesus, that just shows how funny and a good sense of humor Jesus had. Like he was really messing with people. Like he, he kind they of, couldn't, they couldn't tell who it was. And then all of a sudden he's like, look, it's me. Uh, and then all of a sudden they're just standing around in an upper room and he just shows up and he goes, hey, everybody goes, what? He goes, you got any fish? I'm hungry.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> you know what was interesting too is that in all those accounts when the resurrected Christ appears to his disciples, people who should know him. It's when he speaks that they recognize him. Either that or when he breaks bread, as he did with this couple on the road to Emmaus. It's voice activated. And I think that he was teaching them that they were going to know him in a new way, not after the flesh, but after the spirit. There's a whole teaching there too, but I, I really think it was instructive that they recognized the voice. Remember when he was in the garden And Mary was talking to him. She thought he was the gardener, which is interesting because the whole fall occurred in a garden, and here now the new creation begins in a garden, and she's talking to him as if he's the gardener. And then when he says Mary, that's when she recognizes who she's talking to.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. All right, guys, so the book is called The Day I Met Jesus, The Revealing Diaries of Five Women from the Gospels. Guys, thank you so much. You guys also have a website for the book called thedayimetjesus.com, but thank you guys so much for joining us today. We sure do appreciate it.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks. All right, Frank and Mary, thank you guys so much. That was a pretty interesting old conversation.